this is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. We have a very special first-time guest on Church and Culture today. His name is John Borden. He's speaking to us from England. He is known widely as a choral director and scholar of choral music. In 2010, he published a comprehensive directory of choral music, very well received, and the head of the Vasari Singers, Jeremy Blackhouse, said, I can't imagine life Without it, that's pretty high praise. He is a former member of the Guilford Cathedral Choir and has worked as a freelance deputy singer with a number of choirs, such as those of Winchester Cathedral and Westminster Abbey, two of the very best. John is currently musical director of the Guilford Cathedral Singers, which he's held that post since 2009. Very distinguished group. And he performed in two premieres in the United Kingdom of John Rutter's works, Feel the Spirit and Mass of the Children. He writes program notes for musical organizations and record companies. And his notes are available on the web. And a little later, he's going to tell you where to find them. That's what led me to him when I was looking up some notes we're going to talk about in a minute. In retirement, he may be found gardening, crosswording, playing table tennis, or spending time with his grandchildren. John Borden, welcome to Church and Culture. Thank you, Dio. I want to tell our listeners how we met. I was writing a piece for the Christian Review on a piece of music you and I are now going to talk about, which I consider a Christmas masterpiece, which very few people know. It's called Interapox by the English composer Gerald Finzi. And I was doing research, and I found your notes, also your name, and you also said gave an email. So I got in touch with you that way, and now you are here with us, and we're actually going to play most of that composition and talk about it. I take it this is a piece that is near and dear to your heart. Very much so, yes. I've sung in it, and I've conducted it, and I think, like you, that... It's only 15 minutes long, but I think it's a miniature masterpiece. Uh, it's partly to do with the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of, of the uh, St. Luke account of the Gospel with Robert Bridges' poem. And I think the two together complement each other beautifully. And uh, that, that, texturally speaking, that, makes a very strong backbone to the piece. But it's also the musical organisation of it. Um, you know, the the use of the uh, use of the carol that uh, he, he uses for part of the uh, part of the musical fabric of the piece, the first Noel uh, tune, and also the the peeling bell motif which is a, a bit like the Westminster Chime, you know, bum, 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 bum. uses bum, it beautifully. Bum, that, that's one that you would hear, but he doesn't do it quite like that, but it's similar to that. Da, 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 da. It's, it's that little tune there. And he, uh, a lot of the fabric of the piece is, is built on that. But uh, the, the other thing I should mention that attracts me to Finzi's music generally and it's, it's very evident in this piece, is this wonderful setting of the English language, which I suggest is really second to none. And uh, he, he does it uh, largely, it's the use of only one note per syllable, which, of course, is an ancient tradition going back hundreds of years. Uh, and was was a well a, a principle 
that uh, people like Bird and Gibbons were well familiar with. But Finzi does it in his, in his particular way, so that most of the time you've only got one note per syllable. So when he does write a melisma, for instance, uh, at the end of the baritone's introduction, when he gets to the word singing, and he's, he's by the way, sung about 30 bars uh, of one note per syllable, but when he gets to the word singing, there's a long melisma there, and it's therefore that much more... Um, Telling the fact that we have you can actually understand uh, what he's what he said. Yeah, yeah. And the the the, the uh, rhythmic uh, figures in his writing very much reflect the speech rhythms. Um, I mean, just take the opening phrase that the baritone starts with, for example, "A frosty Christmas Eve when the stars were shining." You find that the melody that uh, Clinton uses reflects the, the rise and fall of the language, but the rhythm very much reflects the, the speech rhythms. And that, that's a, a trademark of, of Finzi's. Well, uh, um, John, let's go ahead and play the prelude where some of these basic motifs or themes of the music will be heard very clearly it's a it's an there's no words there's no chorus no baritone but it's so lovely and it really does introduce the rest of the piece and you actually sang i believe in this recording didn't this is the one uh, directed by david hill with the winchester yeah. cathedral choir that's right. It was when I was working quite a bit down at Winchester, albeit as a deputy. I was never a regular member of the Winchester Cathedral Choir, but I was uh, I deputised quite a lot at one point, and uh, we recorded this with the with uh, the Winchester Cathedral Choir. And, and one of the late arts at Winchester, Donald Sweeney, sang yeah. the baritone solo so sensitively. Uh, and and Libby Crabtree is a soprano with the Bournemouth Symphony. Right, Crabtree should also be mentioned, of course, a very fine soprano singing the role of the angel. Maybe, uh, yeah, uh, I was just about to say something about the role of the baritone. Of before you do that, be, John, before you do that, we're gonna we're gonna play some of the prelude and then stop, and we can talk yeah. about the baritone's entrance. So this is the prelude to Gerald Finzi's In Terra Pax.
That was the first part of the prelude to Intera Pax by Gerald Finzi, played beautifully by the Bournemouth Symphony, conducted by David Hill. And at the end of this prelude, which lasts about two and a half minutes, a baritone enters singing a poem by Robert Bridges. John, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's called Noel Christmas Eve, 1913, and it's subtitled Pax Omnibus Bone Voluntatis, Peace and Goodwill, Peace and Goodwill to All Men, um, and um, it, it Finzi probably more than most must have been aware of the terrible irony of, of Bridges' reassuring Pax Hominibus, uh, which was swiftly followed by the outbreak of World War One. Yes. Uh, Finzi himself um, had uh, a, a, a series of tragedies befalling him in his early years. By the time he was 18, he, he lost his father, three elder brothers, and his much admired music teacher, who was killed in action. Um, and, and of course, the general appalling losses of the First World War that was that formed the background to his adolescence. So um, there's, a, there's a terrible irony in that that Robert Bridges' poem, you know, "Peace and Goodwill to All Men." Yet, despite this, uh, he, he writes this absolutely beautiful uh, piece of music, which is. Uh, hopeful and optimistic and reassuring and and really very peaceful uh, and we're going yeah. to listen to baritone Donald Sweeney uh, sing this very beautiful poem by Robert Bridges which as John has says opens with a frosty Christmassy let's listen a frosty Christmas Eve When the stars were shining Fed I forth alone Where westward falls the hill And from many a village In the watered
John Borden, I just find that magnificent. And, and, and the setting of the poetry, so powerful. Yeah. I think uh, one of the things that various commentators... There are, there are two very good biographies of Finzi. One is by Diana McVeigh and the other by Stephen Banfield. Um, and um, uh, both of them make the point that Finzi seemed to allow the poetry to dictate to him what music he should write. Uh, he's the servant of the, poet, of the poet all the time, whereas others, and I'm not saying that this is wrong, uh, it's just a different approach. Other composers uh, use the poetry to impose their their musical vision on. Uh, you think of something like like Britain, who who, who also like Finzi chose texts of the very finest quality, um, but his his approach uh, was 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 quite different because of the richness of his imagination and his, and his genius. Um, the, the poetry carries these wonderful uh, musical images and the, this wonderful musical vision that Britain had. Finzi, his talent was much more modest, so it's partly to do with that. He, 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 he wasn't uh, of the calibre that could impose himself on the text in, in that sort of way. Instead, he, he allows the, the poet to... to take to him what sort of music he, he should write and as a consequence of that although he's a, a modest talent Finzi, it's wonderfully honest music that really does speak directly to the listener well it's, and I, it's I a kind of John it's a kind of humble beauty indeed absolutely humble beauty it's certainly humble and it's certainly beautiful and I, I don't see how anyone could fail to be really moved by that opening I know that, uh, John, in, in preparation to talk to you, I also read those sections about Interapox from the biographies. And I was yeah. very happy that Diana McVeigh, who can be very severe sometimes, totally embraced Interapox. And I also looked through the published letters, uh, which is, runs a thousand pages long and, and was edited by McVeigh. And Finzi makes only a couple of, of rather offhanded remarks about it. I, it makes me wonder if how important it was to him. That's an interesting comment. I, I don't know the answer to that, really. Um, I mean, I think, I think he was quite proud of his achievement with that, with that work. Well, he knew but, he was I mean, dying in 1950. He did, indeed, yes, that's right. Um, and, of course, the, he, was, he was very self-critical, and he worked quite slowly. He put, he put pieces of music away in a drawer for sometimes years at a time. And, and the, the genesis of this particular piece goes back about, you know, some 30 years before it actually came to fruition. And, you, uh, you know, it was think, not commissioned. This is something he did... By his own initiative. That's right. Yes, yes. It wasn't. It wasn't a commissioned work, and he was. He, it, uh, in my program notes about the piece, I've, I've uh, mentioned the fact that he loved the countryside of the Cotswolds and the border country between uh, uh, west of England and, and Wales, and um, he he. He climbed up to the top of Chosen Hill, which is a, 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 a small hill just outside Gloucester, and uh, evidently he heard the midnight Christmas bells ringing out over the valleys, and it made a, a, a really lasting impression on him. Um, but it was it was it was quite a long time after that that the yeah. piece came to fruition. Well, so at this point. John, at this point in the first part of Interapox, the chorus enters, and yeah. this, and then this blending of the uh, Christmas narrative in St. Luke's Gospel then joins Bridges, and as many people have commented, including yourself, 
Fenzi handles that connection between the poetry and the gospel very, very uh, seamlessly almost. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it seems to follow perfectly naturally uh, from one to the other. And uh, his musical style, uh, I mean, Fenzi is quite conservative. I mean, this goes back again to him working within his own limitations, but nevertheless producing yeah. music of great quality and, above all, integrity, you know, and a very yeah. recognizable style. But, John, let's, um, let's go ahead and listen to the choral entrance here. This is, again, you're singing in this, the Winchester Cathedral Choir. Let's listen. So at the end of the first part of Interapox, we hear the chorus coming in, uh, intoning, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And as we come to the end of that and we enter to the second section, we're going to go ahead and listen now and talk about it after. The chorus comes in in a quite different tone of voice. Let's listen.
Well, after the chorus entered the angel, the soprano, sung by Libby Crabtree. And, John Borden, you were in the recording sessions in the chorus. Did you guys have a feel that something very special was was happening? To some extent, yes. Although the the mechanics and logistics of, of recording, you know, it's not like a live performance. I think it's easier in a live performance when you know something special is happening happening but you know in the recording studio you, you do a bit here and then there's a, 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 such a slight uh, issue with something or other and so we stop and we do that bit again it's, it's a bit more difficult to, to feel that uh, but I, I mean I did I did feel that listening to the two soloists that you know here were two voices just ideally suited to this piece and uh it would take something pretty special to do it better than they've done it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that sounds simple, but isn't that, as a singer, isn't that difficult to make it sound that good? As a soloist, do you mean? Yes. Well, I mean, any capable soloist ought to be able to sing the the solo parts in this, in this work. They should sing it, they should have no trouble in singing it well. I think the the insight into the text is 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 a crucial yes. factor in this. You know, yes. I, I have heard soloists in in various pieces. I have heard soloists, and I've has made me think. I wonder if I've really thought about this text. But I think both Donald Sweeney and Libby Crabtree most definitely did give us a lot of thought before they embarked on it. Yes, we're going to take a short break. Listeners, we're going to come back with John Borden, Gerald Finzi, and Intera Pox in just a moment. back with John Borton, who's with us from England. We're talking about uh, Gerald Finzi's what we feel is a musical masterpiece for Christmas in Terra Pox. Uh, John is known widely as a, not just as a singer, but as an expert in choral music and published a big book about choral music. And John, we're about to listen to the chorus sing then suddenly uh and uh, you know it's uh it's is this to set up the baritone entrance with this with the second bridges poem uh i i wouldn't have said exactly that uh he's responding to this much more dramatic section of the of the biblical text um and and it's, it, it's worth pointing out that we we think of of, of Finzi as a very much a lyrical composer, but he was quite capable of writing animated, dramatic uh, music yes. as well, and especially that in intimations of immortality. Uh, but certainly here we we get a very dramatic uh, writing to reflect that part of the biblical text. And well, when we get to glory to God. Uh, we we get the voices overlapping in canon. Yeah, yeah it's That's like great. bells pealing. I want the listeners to to notice the how he orchestrates that and writes that for the chorus. It really you can almost see and hear the bells ringing. So again, we have uh, and John is singing in this uh, the choir of Winchester Cathedral in in Terra Pox.
John, it's just lovely uh, the way Finzi ties all these vocal sections together with orchestral interludes and then the prelude at the beginning. And the music, he's repeating the motifs, but in the orchestration makes it sound completely fresh and new again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the whole idea of sandwiching the St. Luke Gospel in between the sections of the Robert Bridges poem was an absolute stroke of genius that it just works superbly but as you say the the orchestral writing as well knits it together and I hope the listeners uh, heard that what you were referring to as the, as the, the well I, 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 you know if I can hear it they can hear it believe me because I'm no musical scholar or musicologist I'm just an uh, amateur with a capital A. Uh, but I, again, I, like Diane McVeigh says in her comment, Finzi in this piece created something immediate and universal. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It, it's very much a, a, a personal expression of his own, uh, own thoughts and lifestyle. You know, it ties in with the whole romantic tradition and what he was doing, you know, he was in touch with a, a whole group of, of composers. We we're very fortunate at, at the time to have oh, so many what a What a golden age. What, what a golden age. So we're going to hear now uh, Donald Sweeney come back, enter in with the second of the Bridges poem. But to me, heard afar, it was starry music. This is really beautiful. Let's listen. David Hill conducting the Bournemouth Symphony with the Winchester Cathedral Choir, Donald Sweeney, who just sang, and Libby Crabtree, who was the angel. Uh, I don't, is it possible that Donald Sweeney ever recorded anything better than that, John? <laughs> I don't think so. He was such an unassuming guy, Don was. Um, you no, know, he he just came along and fulfilled his 
his uh, duties as a, as a as a lay clerk in the in the professional choir at Winchester. Some really? any solos that he has to do, but he, I don't think he did a lot of recording. Other, you know, other than what cropped up within the cathedral choir. Wow, well, that's quite remarkable. Now, you mentioned John Borden. You mentioned earlier that Finzi let certain pieces sit in a drawer. And we have time. We're going to take a, a quick listen to uh, the last part of one of his very famous pieces, a setting of William Wordsworth's poem, Intimations of Immortality. And from what I understand, this was started in the 30s and not performed till 1950. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's another example of... of, of Things that he started and didn't have, didn't find it easy to 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 finish. You know, it was uh, uh, quite a lot of labour involved for him. Um, he didn't have the facility of, of some of the composers one could think of. I mean, there, there are several precedents for that. That was that was true with with uh, with William Walton, for example. He was another one that that had to work very hard at it. Um, but yeah. This is another one that um, didn't really... It was first performed in 1950, Uh, so quite a while after he first thought about it, first started jotting down some ideas. Well, let's listen to Ian Partridge uh, with the Guildford Philharmonic Choir and Orchestra, conducted, I believe, by Vernon Hadley sing the the very first half of the last section of Intimation of Immortalities, and it begins with, And O ye fountains, metals, hills, and groves. Let's listen. Borden, as you said earlier, uh, Fenzi is second to none in the setting of English poetry to music. Yeah, and words were really, really important to Fenzi, either as choral pieces or as songs. You know, he, he only got up to something like Opus 40, 40, I can't exactly remember which number it is, but two-thirds of his output was 
involved words rather songs or, or choral settings. So it was absolutely central to to his to his uh, musical being, really. But I mean that that extract you just played is, is such a good example of uh, his sensitivity to the language. Uh, you know, and as I said earlier on, that he always considered that he was the servant of the poet, um, and it, it comes through in in all his in all his work, really. Now, John, you're a tenor. You must have taken a yeah. shot at this at some point. <laughs> no, I, I I I'm not good enough to be able to sing this. I'm, I know my limitations. Huh. I'm a choral singer who's done a few solo uh, solo extracts in various things, but I wouldn't be able to tackle something like this. Well, you I and I are, are stand together in our admiration for Ian Partridge. Uh, yes. yes. He just yes. did so many outstanding recordings of Vaughn Williams and Finzi and Gurney and, you know, Von, and lots of others. Uh, yeah. Let's go ahead and listen to the to the end part. And come Just back. Before we can... we do, Go ahead. Before we do, uh, the recording you've chosen, um, the choir is uh, Guilford Course, Sati, yeah? Yes. That's just down the road from me. That's a happy coincidence. I lived huh. about six months outside of Guilford. But you didn't sing in this one? No, no. Okay. No, I didn't sing in this one. Well. It's just a local, a, a very, very good local choir. They certainly are. So let's let's listen to Ian Partridge and the Guilford uh, Choir uh, finish the work entitled "Intimations of Immortality" by Gerald Finzi. That was the uh, finale of Finzi's Intimations of Immortality, words by Williams Wordworth. And John Borden, you don't, you may not know this because I just read it an hour ago or so. Howard Ferguson, the English composer, sent a letter to Finzi where he objected to the final chord of this piece. He thought it should have been more uplifting than th- that chord. Yes, he did. Uh, I, I think Finzi was right, though. Uh, the, the piece is... Uh, the, the music reflects Wordsworth's uh, uh, so so well. The subtitle 
of the of the odors from recollections of early childhood, and it's really it's a lament for the lost joys and intuitive wonders of childhood. So that must have struck a real chord with Finzi, who had all this tragic loss in his childhood, and he was he was quite a loner as a child was Finzi. So um, I think I think the the last few bars with that. Uh, chord with the with the G sharp in it, which is unexpected. I think I think that's right. It introduces just that little hint of uncertainty, of uh, of regret, suffering, uh, which works beautifully. Um, I think we should also just mention that this is just about the biggest piece that Finzi wrote. He, he didn't write many large-scale pieces. There's, of course, the clarinet concerto, the cello concerto, and he was working on a piano concerto, which he never finished. Uh, but this, with, with those two orchestral works plus this, those are really the the uh, his biggest pieces. Um, and um, I think it's a very successful piece. And um, I've, I've conducted that one with Core Society that I was musical director of um and um they they the choir absolutely loved it it's a, well, i think it's a magnificent piece john that brings up a topic i wanted to end our conversation with we've got a few more minutes but you know beautiful music like we just played and particularly in Pox and intimations of immortality are they still being performed regularly in the uk Yes and no. I mean, regularly in the sense that amateur chorus societies up and down the country will certainly perform, some of them will perform in Terra Pax, and less so in Tomatoes of Immortality, because it's a big piece requiring a full orchestra and a very fine tenor solos. But, uh, you know, music is, classical music is, having a difficult time at the moment and uh, things, pieces like that don't quite have reached the same wide audience that they once did, um, regrettably. Uh, but it's certainly Finzi uh, is a name that is known. I mean, we've got Classic FM over here that plays some of his more popular stuff, you know, the clarinet bagatelles, the... Uh, Eclog and other orchestra, short orchestral pieces. So he is he is known, and of course the Dies Natalis that that is certainly performed a lot still. The, the solo cantata Dies Natalis. Um, so he is a name that is known. So if you put that on a program, um, people will recognise the name. They they will listen to it perfectly happily. Whereas if you put something that's unknown that you've got to be awfully careful before you program an unknown composer because you might not get a very good audience and you might make a thumping loss on it so uh music music is is um it, it, it's not easy balancing the the commercial needs with the artistic aims you know well okay we've got a minute yet uh, left and john borden can you name any piece that's been written in the last 10 years that you think has the beauty and emotional impact of what we just heard? <laughs> that's a difficult question. Um, uh, I'd have to think very carefully about that one. Just at the moment, I can't, there's nothing that particularly springs to mind. Um, there are obviously short anthems and liturgical pieces by composers like James Macmillan. Um, yeah, that, he's got that, some. He's got some powerful pieces for sure. He has indeed. Yes, he has indeed. Um, but I'd have to think about that before giving you a definitive answer. All right. Well, I put you on the spot and. I apologize for it, but Macmillan, James Macmillan, Sir James Macmillan is a is a very good answer. I hope you'll come back with us. We certainly would like to know more about 
the world of choral music, and of course, that'll come up again soon at Eastertide. So, John Borden, singer, choir director, choral scholar, thank you so much for coming on Church and Culture. It's been a pleasure, dear. Thank you for asking me. Thank you very much. And we'll be back in a moment with another great guest.